Tattoo List, brought to you by Same Same But Black, a collection of queer conversations released during Auckland Pride 2022, supported by the Sparks Empowerment Fund. Welcome to Cue List 2022. I'm your host, Michelle, from Same Same But Black. Today, we are joined by Vinod Baal to talk about his Cue List. Please introduce yourself, Vinod Baal. Thank you so much, Michelle. So, um, yeah, call Dalane Tokuwaka, um, call Siwak Tokumonga, Sutledge, Toku Awa, Kobalu Jatere, Toku Mirai, Kopanjabi, Toku Iwi, Kokamacho Ate Malparaka, Toku Hapu, Kobal Toku Fano, Kovano Takuanoa. Thank you very much for um, the invitation to speak, Michelle. Um, my name is Vinod Bal. I go by he, him pronouns. Um, and yeah, my, a bit about me, I guess my family landed here in um, New Zealand 104 years ago. Um, from India and landed and lived in the lands of Ngāti Mania Porto um, before we moved up to the lands of Tainui um, and um, reside where we are now in Hamilton um, and Ngāra Owaia. So it's a bit about my background. Let's talk about the queue list and why. How difficult was it for you to make your choices? Yeah, um, quite tough i guess so um oh sorry on my cue list i've got sort of three three texts um the first is a film called eklarkito deka to esalaga which is um and it translates sorry into how i felt when i saw that girl so it's a hindi movie um and basically it's all about um this Punjabi girl who is a lesbian her name's sweetie trying to come out to her family and sort of the the trials and tribulations of being lesbian in a rural Punjabi conservative household. The second text on my cue list is Loaded by Christos Theloklis. And this is a text about a young Greek gay man, Ari, who is uncomfortable with his homosexuality and therefore he indulges in substance abuse, casual sex with men who demean his sexuality. Really, really fascinating read and then the last text that i chose is a poem um beta by rakesh rati which was published in a book called yarna gay writings from india and this poem is basically about the binary decision or choice between duty and desire i guess it, it was relatively tough to choose these texts or it was relatively tough to choose these texts on my cue list i think because there is a lot of recourse to the arts, particularly, you know, through film, through writing um, and through music from the LGBT community, because they need to get their their ideas and thoughts down one way or another. Um, You know, we can't do it visibly and explicitly in the the community. Um, So we need to be able to put it down somewhere. Um, And the implication of that is that there's actually quite a few texts out there. Um, now, this is made easier by the fact that there are limited writings from a cultural perspective, the, the perspective that I argue from, as I mentioned in my introduction, um, I'm Punjabi, um, and sort of the texts that I am looking for, things that um, resonate with me as a gay Punjabi man. And unfortunately, yeah, there, there isn't a lot about this, about this particular circumstance. So, yeah, it was tough, but then in the same vein... Not really, <laughs> because we're not really that visible when it comes to mainstream queerness in in Aotearoa or indeed around the world. Yeah, so no, that's right. So, what memories and flashbacks do you have that relate to these choices, and how do you see them 
how do you see them representing you within our community now? I guess to, to answer that, I'll, I'll elaborate a bit more on all of the texts. So firstly, um, the film that I mentioned um, earlier, Eklarki ko deka to Lager, it is, as I mentioned, about a lesbian, lesbian girl whose name is Sweetie. She's from Punjabi family. And there are a lot of key elements that represent the, particularly the Indian um, LGBT experience. And I guess I'll, I'll go through and um, talk about some of the key ones here now. So the first one um, in the film, there is a brother, so a brother of Sweetie, um, who knows that she is lesbian and actively tries to repress that sexuality um, through power and control of his sister. And in the film, there's a there is a scene where um, he is saying hurtful things about LGBT people, um, and this is before he knew that she was lesbian. And sort of um, Sweepy, the main character, talking about the impact that that had on them growing up, the fact that she believed that her family would never accept her because of those things that her brother was saying uh, was saying when he was younger. And I think from a um, ethnic people of color. Um, LGBT experience, a lot of us have have that, you know, our family members saying things, not necessarily knowing that we're going to grow up to be LGBT and sort of the impact that they have or those words have on us. And quite often they're really, really strong, pervasive um, sentiments as well. Um, another key element from this film was um, a scene where Sweetie was praying to God to be reformed again from a cultural and, and particularly religious standpoint, there is the pervasive element of religion in our lives. Um, and I, I understand that religion can be a good thing when it comes to trying to reconcile um, one's identity and um, particularly the LGBT identity. Um, however, here it was depicted sort of um, in a negative form um, where Sweetie was praying to God to try and get her to be reformed because she considered herself abnormal as a result of the society telling her she was. Again, I think that that is quite a salient experience for a lot of us. Um, a lot of us, you know, growing up were, you know, on our knees for prayer, really, really trying to become heterosexual or cisgender because though that life was considered or is considered to be normal. And because of those normative conceptions, we felt so, or we feel so, so abnormal and we want someone, something to change us. And I think, yeah, that, that was a really massive one for me as well, because yeah, I spent many, many a days <laughs> until I realized, oh, well, it's not going to happen. So <laughs> it's just a waste of my energy. Um, might as well put my energy into accepting it. And you know, developing confidence in my sexuality as opposed to praying for it to be changed. I guess one other element from this particular movie, before I move on to the to the book, is is a passage that Sweetie said. So in this film, they uh, want a Sweetie um, partners up with a, a male film producer, and he wants to produce a play that depicts lesbian relations. And when Sweetie's father finds out that this play is depicting lesbian relations, he absolutely loses it and he says, this play won't go forward. Um, and Sweetie responds in a really, really eloquent way that I, that 
really got the tears flowing. Um, and she said, you know, it, it would be all right and I wouldn't go against her decision, Dad, if it was just about me, but it's not. It's about all of those children who spend their entire lives in loneliness, craving for just word, one word of understanding, whose childhood gets spent trying to find some way, any way, to get accepted to fit in, any way to make their classmates stop laughing. This play is for the child who lived her whole life inside her diary. Now, I think those words were really poignant and cause a lot of tear jerking for a lot of us ethnic LGBT people because our lives were spent inside diaries. They are spent inside diaries. When I was younger, there was never any um, understanding that I would ever be able to live my life as a proud, openly gay Punjabi man. I always thought that my life as a gay Punjabi man would have to be relegated to my writings and my book. Um, it would be relegated to the thought processes inside my head and really um, yeah, got, got the tears going because I think that it really resonated with the fact that we truly believe that we, from a young age, that we're never able to live our true authentic lives. So when things, even something such as a play inside a film happen that represent our visibility as LGBT ethnic people, that makes us really happy. So that, there's those three elements um, from, from that first film. And I'll just pick one one each from the other two. So the film um, Loaded by Christos Tilokolos, there is a, yeah, as I said, a young Greek gay man, Ari, um, who is uncomfortable with his homosexuality. And therefore he indulges in substance abuse, um, casual sex with men who demean his sexuality. And I think this, again, really represents... Um, sort of moving beyond childhood to those adolescent stages where you are an ethnic LGBT person and the sense of self-destruction you have towards yourself because you've got this cognitive dissonance going in, in on your head. And it's actually an incorrect cognitive dissonance. One saying that, well, you've got your ethnicity on this side and you've got your sexuality or gender identity on this side. They can't ever come together. Where the reality is, is that they, they can, they have, um, historically, they were they were very much accepted, but it was the imposition of colonization that changed that mindset. So, what really resonated with me um, from from this text is sort of the many self destructive behaviours that Ari engages in um, because of the mental anguish of being ethnic and gay in a non permissive society and community. Um, and it speaks really well to the, that ethnic gay experience, you know, the ephemeral experiences, the short-lasting experiences, so you don't have to be in a state of permanence about your sexuality and ethnicity. Um, substance abuse, massive, massive issue that I don't think is talked quite a, that I don't think is talked enough about in our ethnic LGBT communities, um, and sort of those other things that stop the mental anguish that um, that happens because of this perceived cognitive dissonance that that really spoke to me about sort of my adolescent teenage years where I was really hating myself hating the world and I engaged in things that yeah really represented that hatred and yeah it wasn't wasn't ideal at all and I guess moving on to the last last um text so it's a poem and I'll read it extract I won't read it all because it's it's a big one um but I'll start now so every chapter of my life written by their hand 
If I now search for the pen, will they understand? Should I listen to my heart and wrestle with this guilt? Should I lock myself inside the walls they would build? Yet let my desire run wild. How can I find the love I seek and still remain their child? Father waits for the day. I bring a crimson bride. Yet if I sit on a white horse, it'll be an empty ride. Now, this is a poem called Beta. And Beta, um, in a lot of Indian languages, um, Hindi, Punjabi, um, means sun. And it's prefaced by the, uh, the two words, or sorry, the three words, um, duty versus desire. Now, in Indian society, there is, and this is actually the same in many, many ethnic communities, there is the duty of having deference towards your parents, um, the duty of getting married and carrying on your bloodline, particularly for males, because um, we live in a patriarchal society and um, the male's last name remains, normatively. Um, now, Rakesh is talking about the binary choice between um, accepting your duty and engaging in heterosexual relations, being a heterosexual man, even though you are gay, living a life of in inauthenticity versus accepting your desire, ex accepting your innate nature of being a gay man. And then the result of that, your parents letting you go and you giving up on what they expect of you, their parental expectations of carrying on your family. Now this, this sort of binary choice speaks really, really well to, uh, again, the choices that um, ethnic LGBT people have to make um, in, in non-permissive communities and families. And it speaks to the heteropatriarchal nature of Indian society, where if you are a gay man, regardless, you would be expected to engage in a heterosexual relationship and pretend to be someone who you're not for the rest of your life. This text really signified that really poignantly represents the lived reality of so many LGBT people around the world. There's a statistic that I always throw out there, but 83% of the world's LGBT population lives in concealment, 83%. And the levels of concealment are highest in Asia and Africa. So it's our people, ethnic LGBT people, who are the ones living lives of inauthenticity. They're the ones who are living lives of erasure. And the reason why I like this, this text is because it's not escapist. Yeah, it accurately depicts the LGBT ethnic experience. It's not escapist because we don't have that luxury. We don't have the luxury of being escapist. We have to be serious all the time because we have to fight for those 83% of people who don't have their lives and their rights respected. And texts like this really contribute to that conversation. Why do you think these conversations are important? I think these conversations are important for a plethora of reasons, and I'll probably re rehash some of my prior um, my prior ideas. But I think the first one is that it all starts with a conversation. Yeah, minds, attitudes, and behaviours will not change until society starts to see and hear us, and until our own communities start to see and hear us. And they only see and hear us through conversations like this. 
so that's that's the number one reason why conversations are so important because as i mentioned before we live or ethnic lgbt people live lives of erasure people don't think we exist you know ethnic lgbt people constitute the largest queer and trans population on earth yet if you looked at queer popular culture you would struggle to apprehend that fact so conversations like this to me are really important because they're all about visibility they're all about letting those 83 percent of people out there in our global lgbt community who are mainly from our communities that you are valid people are out there like you and that eventually and i say this with a sense of hope about the future that eventually things will change because that's the constant function of time isn't it change so i think that's that's sort of the main reverent fact behind conversations is that it's just so important because things won't start to change if we don't have them and if we're not visible in some in societies and communities hopes and dreams anything you might want to state or see yeah with of us in the conversations i guess to, to answer that question i need to sort of briefly elaborate on the three key experiences of ethnic lgbt people now the first as i as i previously mentioned is inauthenticity there are still lgbt ethnic people in our communities in aotearoa who are living lives of inauthenticity because their families their societies um perceptions of their culture don't um enable them to be themselves inauthenticity is a key experience erasure <clears throat> we're nowhere to be seen yeah as i mentioned before we are the largest global lgbt cohort yet if you looked at popular culture you would be very confused to recognize that fact erasure is a key experience for us <clears throat> and lastly ignorance and being ignored um we are very used to being ignored by mainstream NGOs who are set up to support LGBT people. We don't receive support from them because their support's not culturally responsive. We don't receive any meaningful type of engagement with government or policymakers. We do not receive any type of um culturally responsive service from social service providers we live lives of being ignored um because of the ignorance of other people and the willful ignorance i might add because the information's out there the people are out there they just need to ask um so though really when it comes to my hopes and dreams it's to see those three key experiences dashed it's to see in authenticity to turn um, turn into authenticity it's to see erasure being turned into visibility um it's seeing being ignored into being engaged with it's the complete opposite of what we have right now because while i appreciate there is a lot of formal equality in aotearoa that support that is supposed to ensure that we all have our rights respected and realized the reality is is that the state of lgbt ethnic rights and um, the situation lgbt ethnic people are in in aotearoa at the moment 
are the material circumstances that all LGBT people were in 40 to 50 years ago, yeah, having to be hidden, having to hide, um, having to be scared and fearful. And it may not be scared or fearful from the state, but it's still being scared and fearful from someone else. So the my hopes and dreams of the future is we can have a society and we can have a community of LGBT ethnic people where we can be authentic, where we can be visible and where we can be engaged with. Now, I think there is <clears throat> a couple of other things to tease out there. Um, I think, you know, we've always got to hold hope for the future. Um, and I think a lot of the reason for hope comes from the generation that we're now in. Yeah. So this generation, um, and I, I don't know if I should include myself in it, but this generation, this new generation, don't ask, they demand. Um, they're educated, they know their rights, and they're determined to make positive change. They have a really amazing grasp of the future and of ensuring that everyone gets at least a fair chance. Um, we're raising a whole new generation of kids who are exposed to LGBT identities, who are exposed to people who are LGBT and ethnic. We're having discussions like this. We have charities who are doing the work. Um, we're starting to have nascent, nascent stages of um, policy interaction. Um, so we do have some cause for a cause for hope for the future, um, because if we don't have hope, then what else do we have? And I think that's the really that's the key takeaway for all of us working in this space is that we've got to hold on to hope. Um, and now that's not to suggest that we don't have our challenges. Obviously, this generation has many challenges um, in in the LGBT community. You know, femophobia is a massive one that um, is popping up nowadays. But yeah, this new generation gives me a bit of hope. I guess my substantive or my overarching theme or goal for the world and what I would like to contribute towards um, to it, whether that's through my charity or through my future work um, in the legal and policy space around the world, is it really comes back to that number, the 83%. 83% of the world's LGBT community lives in concealment. Um, the highest degrees of concealment is in, is in Asia and Africa. Visibility or non-concealment is highest in North America, Western Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. So we need to use our ability to be visible in this country to challenge the normative notions of what it means to be queer or trans, because we're in a position of privilege to do this. And I guess my overarching dream is to see the 83% number go down in my lifetime and for more people to be authentically who they are. That's the dream. That's the goal. That's the aspiration. So thank you very much for taking the time to have this conversation. And is there anything else you'd like to say? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Mish, for, for this. I'm, I've really appreciated and um, enjoyed talking to you about these really important topics. Um, as I mentioned before, my name is Manod Bal. Um, I'm from a charity called Adigar Aotearoa. So we are wanting to advocate, educate, um, and support LGBT ethnic people, um, namely South Asians, um, in pursuance of equity for LGBT people of colour. Um, our website is www.adigardaotero.co.nz. Um, check it out if you're interested in our work. Thank you for listening to The Q List. 
Qlist can be found on www.samesamebutblack.co.nz, IG, Facebook, and all other social media platforms. 